Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger for optimising business performance. Scaling up organisations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a higher quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode. We do cracking show notes. They're at dominicmonkhouse.com. Hello. Today, no guest, or in fact, To be absolutely clear, I am the guest today. Today is a reworking of an interview I did with Andrew Walker for Startup Grind in Bournemouth. Known Andrew for a long time. He was one of the founders at Click Tools, which was the tool that we used while I was at Rackspace for managing our net promoter score. Some years ago, they sold that business and Andrew's been working as an angel investor and mentor in the startup community in Bournemouth. So I was delighted when he asked me to go down and chat to him. So he gets me on the couch, we have a couple of beers, and I talk through what I believe are the principles that underpin a successful scale-up. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did doing it at the time. Okay, everybody. So I've known Dom for, I think it was around 2001, two, I think maybe, when we first yeah. met. So and we're going to do things slightly differently tonight. Normally what we do is we, we talk about journey and entrepreneurship but we're going to flip it around a little bit. So Dom now does coaching. Yes. Yeah. And through his career at Rackspace and Pier 1 has, has basically come up with, produced a, a framework of 10 things that you believe will help or, you know, help you scale up, start up, etc. So we're going to go through these 10 things and talk through detail and then the journey will appear as magically as we talk about these 10, 10 points. Um, we don't have any top of the pops music, unfortunately, but if somebody'd like to do that, then as we do it, that'd be good. And we're going to take them in reverse order, so you need to stay to the end to hear the most important one. Okay. <laughs> that's the trick. Is that okay? Yeah, do you want to give a brief intro before we do that, just about what you're doing, what you're doing now? That'd be good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, yeah, I set up uh, Rackspace in, in Europe in 2001. And we will have met in 2002 because that was after the first piece of uh, the one number you need to know. So we were looking, uh, to, do okay. M- yeah, yeah. We were looking to do a net promoter score survey with you okay. uh, when you were at um, Click Tools. So yeah, we took we took Rackspace to 26 million and 150 people in about five years. Uh, and then I went to uh, an MSP in London called IT Lab, who were after Lehman Brothers went bust, losing 65,000 pounds a month. Uh, so stayed there for a couple of years and fixed that business for Sebastian. He then sold that to ECI a couple of years ago for $65 million. And then a Canadian business called Pier One asked me to set up a Rackspace competitor uh, in the UK. So I said, yes, if we put it in Southampton. And they said, why Southampton? And I said, because it's like the Vancouver of England. <laughs> And, uh, You're in Bournemouth. Yeah, no, I know, but it's, the thing is, though, everybody does laugh. But it's the and I said, well, it's got the fifth largest container port in Britain. It's the number one cruise terminal. It's got the New Forest on its doorstep, and the executive team all brought their families to the New Forest at some point, and nobody ever thought that I'd I'd lied to them. Um, and ultimately, we converted the 
derelict pub and office at the end of Town Quay where you get the fast cat over to the Isle of Wight into uh, into great office great <coughs> okay. space. And we built the greenest data centre in the UK in Portsmouth. Um, and we took that business to 30 million in the UK over five years. And globally, we went from 90 million to 200 million. And we sold it in 2013. And I left in I left there in 2014, just before my daughter was born. She's five in May. And so that's why I now do coaching, because I decided that actually, if I, given the fact that I now live sort of near Salisbury, if I got another job in a tech firm as a CEO, I would likely to be London, possibly Thames Valley, but, you know, I wouldn't see the kids grow up. So I took a decision to not have a proper job. Excellent. And so funnily enough, I think the Pier 1 office may come into our first, okay. into number 10. Because number 10, in at number 10, <laughs> um, is environment. So here we have a, a ping pong table and a pool table. Um, so do you want to talk about how you think environments changed since the early days at Rackspace? Because certainly what you did at Rackspace was, was make a lot of cultural change and talk about how environment and why you think it's important. Well, uh, well, I walked in tonight and I felt really right at home. You know, that's, that cladding's probably recycled pallets, looks like to me, a bit of, bit of grass on the, you know, fake grass on the floor. Uh, all, all things that I've uh, used in the past. So when, when I arrived at Rackspace, we were in, in, in the US, we were in headquartered in San Antonio in the Broadway Bank building. And I think there is something about being a startup and, you know, if you look at HP or Apple in, the, in a garage, uh, and there's something about having no money that is galvanizing. And so therefore, you know, having you know desks made out of old doors and mismatched furniture but at some point you've got to have started to make some money and then you want to attract great people and there is a limit to how many great people you can attract to your office if it's a shit tip because you get sort of past i think it's like uh jeff moore crossing the chasm there's a thing for that with recruiting staff and right at the beginning there's that sort of you can get maybe 12 people to buy into your vision of the world that you're going to change the world and you can do it, you can do it anywhere. But then past that, you want some people, you, because you go from being generalist to specialists. And when you start to then want to hire a specialist, they probably are working in an office with central heating or air conditioning and a toilet and stuff, right? And they don't, they just, otherwise they'd be camping, right? So, and so you've then got to then say, well, and at Pier 1, we were very deliberate. Uh, I, I mean, it's funny, at Rackspace, I got the budget to build the office and in the US everything used to be cubes and so I said well what's the budget for a cube and they told me how much it was and then we spent the money on Herman Miller Aeron chairs and better desks and when the CEO turned over he had turned up in the UK at an absolute canary because he was he, he thought we'd spent the money in the same way we did in the US and I hadn't bothered to tell anybody we were doing something completely different and that we had a games room and a cafe and uh, and he was really not but in the end, they copied all of those things. And at, and at Pier 1, it was a deliberate decision in Southampton to build an office that uh, people wanted to work in because we wanted to be an employer of choice. And if you're trying to hire the best people, then you've got to have, you've got to have some good space. And then also, I think the space has an impact on the culture. And so, you know, pool table, table tennis, video games. You know, there's a lot of research that says, you know, either take 10 minutes in every hour or five minutes in every half hour and do some dedicated effort. There's a new book out by Bruce Daisley called Joy of Work. And in that, he, he, 
he's quite adamant that he thinks open plan offices are awful and the, the work of the devil. And I think if you have an open plan office, it can be busy and noisy and distracting. But if you build it right, you've created a quiet space so that people do have work that they need to do. They can, they can go and do it in another space. And so I think if you've got inspirational office, as you, you raise the bar and you say to people, um, this, the office space is part of, of us setting the bar. You know, we're trying to change the world. We've got great space. We want to be a great business. Mm. If your office space is shit, then why would anyone believe that you're trying to change the world? I, I, I mean, I almost think it's, it's made it worse for startups because I don't think you can get away with a, a shit office anymore. You used to be able to do it, whereas now shared spaces almost set the bar, don't they? So if you... Yeah, you're almost better off being in a shared space. You've got to be better than we work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what we'll do is we'll take three or four of these and then we'll open it up to questions on those topics and then we'll come back if that's okay. Next one, structure. So presumably we're talking lots of middle management, lots of nice hierarchies are good. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, I think what my experience is, I... I I read a great book called um, The Service Profit Chain, and then they did an update called The Service Value Chain. And you've come across the Dunbar number. Yep. So, you know, something like 120. When you get past 120 relationships, your brain can't resolve them all into understanding the relationship between one and another. So as your business gets past 60 and towards 100, it becomes harder for you to be really sure that you've got no passengers in the business. And so some businesses like WL Gore won't have a factory with more than 100, 100 employees because they, they say that they can absolutely see a diseconomy of scale. And so what I think they've got at work there is the power of small teams. And so at uh, Rackspace and at an IT Lab and at Pier 1 and, and with some of the clients I now work with, one of the things we do is we say, okay, well, rather than having sales, marketing, customer service, technical support, and you have all of these silos where that silo is responsible for delivering that thing to customers, however big or small they are. You actually say, okay, well, uh, and the way, we've, the way I've done it at a number of companies is we've split the revenue by four, we've split the staff by four, and basically we've created horizontal vertical teams that deliver everything to a quarter of the customers. And so a quarter of the staff, that, so to give you an example, at IT Lab, we had a virtual team of six delivering everything to 10 customers. And at the other end of the scale, we had a virtual team the same size delivering all of the services to 350 customers. And do you move those team, the customers around? Or is that no, once so, you're in that team, so you're in that team? Once you're in that team, you're in that team. Because to a peer one, for example, we had one global support team. We had 45 people in a global support team. You could be a $50 customer on the phone to somebody in the support team. And there's a million dollar a month customer on hold waiting to talk to somebody. And so I said, well, we can't. That just seems mad. And so I got pushback from the guys in the US. You know, it'd be OK if, you, if this was a Soviet collective. But actually, this is the land of capitalism. And they're saying, well, we shouldn't do that. That's just not fair. The, you know, every customer is the same. And the, the organization had built itself uh, so that support was delivered to all customers the same. And in the end, what we had to do is ring fence the team in San Antonio and say all of the small customers will, will get all of their support out of the San Antonio team, which will free us up to deliver better service to our smaller to our larger customers, a small number of our larger customers. I mean, do you think you could scale that from quite small? Do you think you could take a view that says, well, actually, 
that team is looking after 100 customers, whatever that no- number is, they're now at limit. So what we're going to do is we're going to build another team yes. of five or six to I, I think after our next and, 100 customers. And that, so I, I think specialization to me comes in really early. Yeah. If I've got two salespeople, one of them will become an account manager and one of them will do yeah. new business. And the same thing, you know, then I would say, well, as soon as you possibly can, try and come up with a pod or a stripe or a team or however, whatever you want to call it and go, that group of people is going to look after. And, and then it might be, the customer group might be by vertical segment, it might be by size. But there's when you do that, those teams then have a team leader, not a manager. There's somebody within the team and that might not always be the salesperson. You get the opportunity to create people to... Uh, show their man- potential management talents. So, so I see quite a lot of organisations talking about leader rotation, where they sort of like almost vote the team leader in for a six-month period and then, then rotate it around. Have you, have, you come, have you seen that? Have you come across no, that? No, that sounds terrible. Uh, well, I was, I, was, I was interested if it was one of your ideas. No, look, I, so I think, I think one of the things is that nobody should have a job as a manager unless the skills they have are as a manager. And so, you know, what are those management skills? Well, at, at Google, they've actually removed the managers no longer hire, fire, pay, rise, or promote their staff. What they're left with, coaching. So if the thing that gets you out of bed every morning is helping your team be better than they were yesterday, then you're probably a good manager. If it's because you've got a domain expertise, then that might not make you a great manager. And that happens often in businesses as they grow. You know, you've been here a long time. We're going to make you the manager. Yeah. Uh, you've got you're the you're the oldest, you're the longest serving developer. You're going to be the head of development, uh, or same with sales. And and often, it's then really hard to get those people out of the jobs that they actually weren't capable of doing. Now, now one of the things I do want to talk about, and I think we'll do it in here. I'm not sure it fits anywhere else. Is sales remuneration? Mm-hmm. So, is it is this the place to talk about this? Whenever. So you've got this, if I'm right, you're a believer in in not paying commission, aren't you? Um, In in certain cases. Yeah, look, it's a bit like salary transparency. I think it's hard to change if it's not already there. Uh, But I I think that you pay salespeople commission because the product is shit. And if it wasn't shit, you wouldn't need to pay them commission because they wouldn't have a moral vacuum. (laughs) They wouldn't, be, they wouldn't be selling something to somebody that that person didn't need. And, and often, so often that, that's what happens with commission. You know, in an organization where, look, if it's transactional, I, and I've had, uh, I've had dinner several times with the guy who runs, who, who did run Foxton's sales team in, in, uh, in London. Mm. And his view is that unless you're coin operated, you are not a salesperson. And I think that there are lots of great salespeople who are intrinsically motivated. And if you've got a great product that is actually the right thing for the client, then you don't need to pay commission because that, that salesperson will want to do the right thing for the client. So, so do, you, do you think in that circumstance, if you try to hire a sales guy and not pay commission, certain software industry, that would be, I suspect that would be quite a tough challenge because well, a lot of them are coin operators so, to say the guy. So uh, I'm not saying you don't have to pay the same money, yeah. right? You still have to pay the money, yeah, yeah. And, and you still have the same metrics. So you still have still have a revenue target. You're just not remunerated against your revenue target. So one of the things I see all the time is, particularly in the hosting space, I've seen uh, salespeople who aren't technically competent, and so they have to rely on the engineering teams a lot to win a deal. And then the engineering teams 
don't get any commission. The sales guy couldn't have done it on his own. That can cause some conflict in the organization that you might want to avoid. Or in a startup, you might be in a position where really the MD is the number one salesperson. And, you know, again, the whole organization is about supporting the MD to close deals. And then you go and try to hire another salesperson. You don't need to hire that that other salesperson on commission. You'll be able to get somebody to, to do the work to support the MD on sales without having to pay a commission. Yeah. And that may not be a traditional sales guy. It may be somebody who's maybe more suited to building relationships and do you think or well I, I still think you have to enjoy winning you still have to enjoy either you have to enjoy closing or you've got to hate losing one or the other but what I do is I ask people when I'm interviewing salespeople, which I do a lot uh, for, for clients is I say to them what's your best deal and those people who say well I got an amazing co- I got an amazing check or it was the biggest deal that the company had ever done I'm not so interested in where people say I did that deal, and this is the impact it had on the client. That's the sales guy I want to hire. Yeah, that's good too. Um, I got hate mail though when I wrote that article on LinkedIn. Did you really? Yeah. <laughs> Salespeople and sales directors contacted me and told me I was a wanker. <laughs> so, um, good luck to them. <laughs> Excellent. Right. So, at number eight, rhythm. Let me give you the example of what I'm not talking about. In a big company, you have your annual annual performance review. So your boss sits you down and he says, Andrew, if you can remember who you are, he says, Andrew, these are all the things you do that are shit. These are all the things that the team don't like about you. These are all the personality flaws you're going to have to fix. Sadly, I can't give you a pay rise. You've seen my last <laughs> <laughs> And I just, I, and I, so, I, so I think there's a, and, and also the annual, uh, I've run a business before where, you know, we set, we set the annual budget six months before the start of the next fiscal year. We get to the next fiscal year. The budget can't be changed. It's already obvious that we're not going to do the number that we've made up six months ago. And my bonus is I have to be within 5% plus or minus of the number that we made up six months ago. And it's already obvious we can't do that. And so that happens all the time. People set a 12-month revenue target or 12-month budget. Uh, individual individual teams play their budget one against the other, and so it's just too it's just too far. So I, what I what I do is we used to do this at Rackspace, and then it was really clear at IT Lab because when I took over, sixty five thousand pound a month loss. We had three months to save the company, and in that three months, you can get everybody to focus on one thing, and you can say if it doesn't help us save the company, don't do it doesn't matter what it is don't do it and that level of clarity you can get you can get all the time you can say right this is the the one number that we're going to that we're going to that we're going to move the needle on in the next 90 days and we're all going to focus on that i was working with a client recently and we said right improve productivity 10 percent in the three months to march and they got there by the end of february so the next three month cycle is going to be how do we how do we grow the business by 10 percent top line revenue and and it's just that it's a short enough time horizon set some objectives aim for them make sure you've got complete clarity in the organization about what we're trying to do and then also decide how we're going to celebrate that three months when we get there and then for each individual it's daily huddles weekly one-on-ones with your manager weekly team meetings monthly meetings and it's just trying to get into that you know it's taking some of that agile software methodology and trying to say well What's great about that and how do we apply that to business? And that sort of daily stand-up, 15 minutes, what did I do yesterday? What am I committing to do today? What's getting in the way? How can my manager help me? 
overcome that problem. And then you never get into a position where 12 months after having not done what your manager thought you were going to do, you find out that he wasn't happy. You could, what a waste of time and effort. So that, so that getting into that rhythm is, I think, uh, really important. And, and so one of the things that I find when I'm talking to startups and, and smaller organisations who are trying to grow is that a lot of them are almost scared to plan. But what I mean by that, they're almost scared to give themselves a target in three months or four months or if have no consciousness about a plan. Um, do you see that in larger orgs as well? Are there some that just seem to be floating along? Do you think you can't get to that stage without having a plan? Uh, I think that often the budget in larger organisations, the budget can get done. So there is a sales number that a group of executives have put on a piece yeah. of paper. But then it doesn't get communicated with anybody in the organisation and people are completely at a loss about how the business is doing, where it's going, always. And disconnected. Yeah. And you're a fan of OKRs, aren't you? Yes. John so can we talk a little bit about OKRs and, yeah. and how you think they, they work? Does everybody know what an OKR is? That may be the first. Okay, so uh, objective and key results. And... One of the things I see often in organizations is that I see people not wanting to hold their colleagues accountable or not having a mechanism for holding their colleagues accountable. So engineering might think the sales number is made up, but how could they, you know, that sales are obviously experts, we're engineering, the sales guys don't tell us how to, how to write code, we're not gonna tell them how to uh, go sell. But at an objective level, you could set an objective and you can get into good, conflict and debate about making sure the objectives are set right and the idea of setting an objective is that when you set it you think it's only 70% of 70% achievable so that over the next quarter every everything is a stretch goal and then you break that down into some key results so that might be you know where we got to have we got to here by here you know by the end of the month we want to be here and so you you're, you're taking an objective and then you're breaking it down into a series of milestones and then those organizational milestones get communicated down through the whole organization. And so we're sitting with you and I'm, I'm your manager and I'm saying, okay, well, what's your metric? What's your objective? That's the company objective. What's your contribution to the key, that objective and key results? And then you go, okay, well, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do this. And then you might have some of your own, but then it means that when I'm doing my weekly one-to-one -one with you, I'm saying, Andrew, those five things for this quarter, how have you done on those five things this week? And we know that three of those roll up to the corporate objective and the other two are, are something that you've, that you've picked. And I just think it's, um, it's a great way. And if you, know, you can use some software tools and, and a bit like when you're doing software development, you can roll it all the way up through the whole organization and you can see whether are any of those things that red, red, amber, green, you know, you can get a rag rating on, you know, where have we got to drill down into? Where, where are the, you know, we've got objectives that, that rely on each other. And so, you know, knowing that that's the case. But I think that often I find in organizations that when people have a plan, their plan is quite woolly. And so you might say, well, I'm going to sell some stuff. Okay, that's not really very clear. Okay, I'm, I'm going to sell 10 things. Okay, that's brilliant. Well, who are you going to sell them to? Right? How are you going to get the data? And you start to be able to drill down and you can, you can help it just brings a clarity, it brings a process and a, and, a, and a thought process to try and get clarity. And what I do with organizations is I get them to, I get them to write their, their objectives and key results and then I get other people to mark their, their homework. Because 
you look at it and you think, well, you know, that, I think that's right. That's, that's my objective and key results. But you, I give it to you and you go, ah, oh, it seems a bit woolly to me. Or I think your key results. And you, because you, you want everybody's results to be as difficult. You know, that sort of sense of fairness that drives, uh, drives <coughs> us all. You want, you want engineering to feel like they've got hard, as, as hard a goal as sales or, or vice versa. Excellent. Right, so we've done three. Are there any questions on anything that we've talked about up till now? In your opinion, do salespeople in all industries need to be paid commission? So I think in a transactional sale. So, so here's the thing is that um, we, we might get onto this a bit in more detail, but if, if you and I are packing widgets in a box and you're amazing and I'm just average, you'll be able to pack 2x as many widgets in a box as I can. If we get into something which is, uses mental dexterity, um, we might be, we, you could pay people the same money and you might be able to get somebody who's 10x or 100x better than average for no more money. And often when I look at, you know, the things I come across are people say to me, I say to people, so how many of your sales team have hit their number in the last year? None of them. Okay, why are they all still here? Oh, well, they're not costing us that much because we're not having to pay them commission. And it's like, no, they're, they're, what they're costing you is the fact that you don't have somebody good in the seat. And, and at Pier 1, we hired two people at the same time. I had a lady from another industry who had never hit, never missed a number, a quarterly number in 12 years. And I hired a graduate straight from, actually, I hired a graduate who I met in a bar. She was waiting and she was serving tables in a bar and I hired her in the bar. She closed 80% of the leads I gave her and the other lady didn't close as many. And so hiring, hi, hiring her cost me half a million pounds of annualized revenue versus having Jess hit, hit the number. And so I don't necessarily think that, and as particularly account managers, you're paying often and the, the company, the brand, the customer, you know, the service delivery team do a great job that customer will, will spend more money. You're then often people are paying account managers commission and you don't need to pay that role commission. So I think where you might have to is in transactional jobs because to get the best person, but lots of roles which are not new business or aren't transactional, I think you can, and I have been able to go and find people and, and find, find good people and put them on fixed salaries. I have a problem with success management actually and CSMs. So a lot of CSMs are paid, a lot of the split I see is like a 70-30 split on commission and then end up, what ends up happening, they make four phone calls a year, the customer renews and they get their, their 30% commission when effective support yep. and it's engineering who have delivered all the value to yep. the customer, not the and, and not in the fact, if you went to And if you went to market to try to hire those people and not pay commission, you'd find it absolutely fine to hire those people and not on commission. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, the thing is, if you've already got a sales team and you're already paying them commission, it's almost impossible to get them off commission. But what I have done is I've, where I've had teams that are account managers, I've taken them off commission and just paid them a salary. I've paid them basically the average of what they earned in the last 12 months. How would you reward good staff if it's not through bonuses? Some of the things that we've done in the past, I suppose it comes back to some of that rhythm. We would do an all-hands meeting every month. The team leaders or the managers would stand up. They've got five minutes. They can say three positive, they sell three good news stories and then say thank you to somebody not in their team who made their team's job possible this month, bottle of champagne. And then I'd get the staff to stand up and say thank you to somebody else in the organisation who, who, who 
did a great job. And you can see that type of stuff on the wall here. Because actually, you, you, the customer service that you deliver outside the organization can never be better than the service that you get from one another inside the business. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to build, uh, you know, based on the sort of core values and the behaviors that you want the organization to express, you're trying to get people to understand where the social currency is in the organization. And so to me, part of that job well done, you know, we did a, 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 at Pier 1, we did, um, or even at Rackspace right at the beginning, before we had core values, we got, somebody came to me, Anne came to me and said, one of the sales guys was an idiot and we should fire him. And so we wrote 15 behaviors and we rated the whole team. Everybody in the company rated everybody else on a scale of one to five on these 15 behaviors. And the person who came top got a weekend away with their partner in a hotel and the person at the bottom had a chat with me. T&T, the parcel guys, I, I, I was at talk with one of their execs years ago. And at Pier 1, because we had a globally distributed workforce, what we did is we gave people the opportunity, rather than to give cash, to give points. And you could spend those points on company swag. So you could spot the people in the organization who'd been thanked because they had positive points balances. But the, the sort of the inverse of that is you could spot the people who never got thanked and you could spot the managers of the teams who, who never had anybody in them who got thanked. And so it's, it, you could spot those black holes in your organization where nobody, you know, they did, they did an awful job inside the business. And, and, you could then go and you could then go and address that. What happens when a salesperson isn't on commission and they don't sell? Uh, well, if you're a salesperson, you've got to sell. That's your job. So you get rid of them. Or... If there are great values fit for your business and everybody loves them, you find them a different job. So, so I, I think the things I do in organisations is because I actually hate hiring, I hate firing people. I I fired a lot of people, but I, I I don't like doing it. And so I would much rather narrow the role that they've got and try and get them into a role, get them into a narrower role. Or if they if there are if they're a great fit, but sales just isn't them. Is there a customer service role or some other job in the organization that they, they would be great at? But certainly if there isn't and their job is sales, then they've got to go. I also don't just set them a revenue target. I work out what the activity targets are. So one of the things is everybody in the organization has to know every day what a great day looks like. And so a salesperson, it might not be a sale every day. It might be uh, that they have to have five meaningful conversations and therefore they have to record those five meaningful conversations. And in their one-to-one huddle, in their team huddle every day, they would say, I did five or I did six or I did four. And what's stopping me doing five? What am I going to do tomorrow? I'm going to do another five. And so that whole every day people need to be able to say, I did a great day. I did, had a great day at work today, tick. Because people have a KPI or, or KPIs around, around what they're trying to do. Excellent. Right. We're going to do the next two together. So it's meetings and candor. Okay, right. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. I think they're sort of related. Uh, maybe. The thing is, I've spent a lot of time in meetings. I've spent a lot of time in meetings that I didn't need to be in. And I see that all the time with clients. I was with somebody recently who spends 80% of his week in meetings. And most of the time, if you ask people, who's been in a great meeting in the last month? Okay. That was with me. You can't include that. <laughs> right? That was a joke, by the way. About, about four people out of the whole audience have been in a great meeting in the last month, right? And so we all spend a lot of time in meetings. And if you say to people, what would make this meeting better? People give you a long list of stuff. 
And so it's weird, right? We all know the answer and then we just go with the flow and the flow is awful. And so I think in an organization that wants to be, that wants to be great, and I said this to a, to a client last year, I said, you know, you've told me you want to be great, but let me give you some feedback on how I felt today when, you know, nobody turned up on time. Everybody sat there on their phones, even though the CEO, actually they didn't for the first hour because the CEO said no tech, but at 10 o'clock when he left, everyone got their phones out. People, we went for breaks and we said, will everybody be back in 10 minutes? Everybody said yes. Some, one guy came back 20 minutes later and one bloke never came back at all. And it's like that just a lack of respect for everybody else in the room. And this is the senior team in the business. And you know if they're like that with me, they're going to be like that with everybody else in the business. And so it's just tightening up some of that stuff. Like, let's agree how we're going to behave and then let's behave that way. And, you know, having an agenda, have a context. Why are we here? And then let's agree what the most important thing this group of people has got together for a reason. What is it? What are the most important things that we're going to discuss and agree on now? And, it, and so that most senior person in the room doesn't need to be the chairman. They don't need to set the agenda. If somebody invites you to a meeting and you're not sure why, don't go. If it's boring as shit, get up and walk out. At the end, you should take some time at the end to say, how do you think the meeting went on a scale of one to 10? The first, the first bit of the meeting should be share some good news. Uh, Google found that building psychological safety is important to teams. And just sharing a bit of good news at the beginning of the meeting sets the tone for A, psychological safety, and that everyone else will have the same airtime. Uh, and that's really important. Somebody, one person takes a shared set of notes. You can put it on the screen, Google Docs or whatever. One set of notes so that nobody, everybody else can put their tech away. Turn your phone on airplane mode. Uh, you know, just having your phone on the table reduces your IQ by 30, 20 to 30 points. <laughs> put it in your back. You know, it, it's just these things about... Be present in the meeting and have a great meeting mm. deliberately, as opposed to just sort of drifting through on autopilot. We had we had a long debate with one client where a couple of people said, but where would I get my email done if I can't sit at the back and do email whilst I'm in the meeting? <laughs> and so, you know, it's like, well, that's not the point, right? The point is, anyway, you know, or do, do video instead of phone if you're going to do electronically because then people are less likely to be doing their email and again it's about being present mm. you know because you, if you're in a meeting with people and they're not present it's just a crap meeting yeah. you know one or two people are talking to each other and the rest of the people may as well not be there the candor thing is uh, if I had spinach in my teeth would you tell me yeah okay what if I well I would yes well you know me right yeah so when I do that with clients about 30% of the people say that they wouldn't tell the person sitting next to them that they had spinach in their teeth. Really? Wow. Right? And so then I go, okay, what if I had BO? <laughs> and that number drops to about one in 10 people would tell me I had BO, whereas, you know, 60, 70% of people would tell me I had spinach in my teeth. And what I'm trying to get to is that, then I say, well, what if, what if you were smelly all week and on Friday you realised I could have told you you were a bit smelly on Monday? How would you feel? You know, you'd feel like I'd really let you down. You know, I'd put you into an embarrassing situation that you didn't need to be in. But I was thinking about me. I was thinking about how difficult it's going to be about me to tell you that you're smelly. And so some of this stuff is about radical candor, uh, Kim Scott's book, where she says, look, this is about being, being direct with people because you care about them. And if you can get your communication into that space where 
you only have difficult conversations with people when they're in the room. You don't talk about them behind their back. If you're standing waiting for your coffee in the morning at Costa or Starbucks and you think, who is the one person from the company you don't want to bump into? They're the person that you need to go and spend some time with because that's the relationship that's okay. most broken. And it's about how do you fix that, right? Or in, when, you're having a, when you're having a meeting uh, and, you're, and you're debating a topic, you know, let's not, get it, let's not get personal, but let's make sure that we really press each other hard. And so that's one of the things that happens in high-performing teams. And I find that that's really difficult for people to get their heads around. If you're an Uber driver... And, you, and every time you get an Uber, you get a rating. You only get fives and ones. Nobody ever has ever rated an Uber driver two, three, or four. And so what happens is if your average rating as an Uber driver drops to four and a half, there's an intervention because you, you, are now, you are now, it's unacceptable because it should be all fives and maybe an occasional one. And I think it's the same with, with candor where people think that they're being quite direct. They're probably not even making a difference and so you've got to be much more direct and deliberate and it's very uncomfortable and you've got to practice it and so when you can do that you can you can the pace with which the organization can move picks up so at pier one we had a rule at the executive team level which was no triangulation so if you came to me and complained about marcus i would say well that's great i'm going to give you 72 hours to have that conversation with marcus and then i'm going to talk to him and make sure that you've had that conversation and so we forced ourselves to keep us to, to, to have difficult conversations and we kept that in the team before we for six months before we rolled it out into the company um, because that's it's just hard uh, but it makes such a massive difference excellent and god I'm not going to put the glass on engagement there's two things there one is staff and one is customers yep. um, and so I've used uh Net Promoter Score, NPS, to measure customer engagement. Ever since Fred Reichel wrote his article in the Harvard Business Review, we rolled it out at Rackspace uh, with click tools yeah, pretty, much, pretty yeah. much straight away after that. And that is just trying to create... So if, if I said to you, Andrew, you're amazing, like it might make you feel warm and fuzzy, but you can't change anything. Mm. And so the thing is, you've got to go and seek criticism. And so Net Promoter Score, would you recommend... Andrew to a friend or colleague on a scale of zero to ten, and what you're after is you're after nines and tens. That's not a real question. I don't. Know. <laughs> I don't know. And and so and so measuring measuring customer engagement, and then asking for the feedback about why you got that, and then and then going back to customers and saying thank you for your feedback. This is what we've changed in our business as a result. Drives customer engagement, and you know, again, it's about setting a high bar. So when we were at Rackspace. First Direct had scores in the 70s and 80s, and so that was our benchmark. We wanted to be up there. We didn't want to be 14 to 25 like the rest of the yeah. IT industry, yeah. uh, and we got there. And yeah. Do you use Gallup stuff for? Did you use Gallup stuff for employee? Yeah, the Gallup Q12. Yeah, and I, and I still use that. In fact, one of the clients I work with down in Australia has just adopted the Q12 as their staff engagement model. And there's a couple of things in there that, in the UK, only eight Gallup reckon only eight percent of employees in the UK are engaged. But what's at stake for you if you can drive engagement is the Sunday Times best company stuff. Um, what they say is that those in, engaged employees will work 30% longer hours for 5% less pay and be happier. Okay. And what you've, got, what you've got is basically 40% discretionary effort. If you come to work and do an okay job, you won't get fired. 
but that's probably the 60% effort mark. And what's, what's, what, what's at stake is the other 40%. The I spots, you know, I, I walk into boardrooms and do all the chairs match? Is any of them broken? Are any of the lights flickering? And do the pens work? And so often you walk in and you go, broken chair in the corner, light flickering, you pick up a couple of markers and none of them work. That's a company where there's no, there's no discretionary effort because somebody else in that company will have picked up that marker and they'll have decided to just put it back where it was and not put it in the bin and buy some more. And in companies that are just hitting it, you know, you walk into reception and 10 people in the first 10 minutes ask you if you're okay and it's, have you got everything and does the people, the people you're coming to see uh, know you're here. And so that sort of measuring employee engagement, measuring customer engagement, and finding an external benchmark and then trying to be world-class. In Gallup, the first question is, I know what's expected of me every day. And that, to me, links back to OKRs. And so counterintuitively, having deploying something like OKRs or KPIs or, or having a scorecard actually drives employee engagement. Absolutely. And there's a common thread to this that will become clearer as we get closer to the number one. And we'll take the next two together. Principles and values. Yeah, they're, they're, they're similar. I think principles rather than rules. Because in bureaucracy gets developed as any organisation grows. And what often happens is there's for the rules get written for the 2% of people who didn't do what people thought was the right thing. And the right thing is the values. The values are a shorthand way of describing the behaviours. And I was interviewing a lady called Liz Robinson uh, last year, and Liz was the youngest head teacher in the UK. And she took over, 12 years ago, she took over one of the worst schools in the country. It's Old Kent, is Old Kent Road the cheapest space on the Monopoly board? Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's just off Old Kent Road, right? And it's an old Victorian school building surrounded by concrete tower blocks. And to get to the school, you basically have to drive underneath one of the tower blocks. And the taxi driver said, mate, are you sure? Are you sure this is where you need to be? And, you know, it looks as though people, you can tell people don't have curtains. They've got blankets hanging up in the windows of these tower blocks. It looks rough as shit. Um, And she took over this school and she said on the first day she had an epiphany. A teacher brought a child in by the ear and said, Miss Robinson, this child doesn't know how to behave. And she thought, huh, they wouldn't have brought the kid in and said, this child doesn't know how to read because they would have realized that the job of a teacher is to teach a child to read. And so then she realized that actually, if you want people to behave in a certain way, you have to teach them. Because people won't know. Like she's got 95% of her kids don't have English as a first language. So there's a massive cultural difference. And she has no rules. What she has is just values. She runs the school on five values. And that whole idea of having values and having behaviors in an organization and then teaching them. And to your question earlier about how do you do staff, you know, how do you, how do, you do job well done? Every time we, we said, job well done to anybody it was referring back to a behavior referring back to a value showing that you could get social currency in the organization by behaving in the right way uh, i was just going to ask on the values thing how often do you go into organizations where the, the values are clear but just not acted on by the, the leadership team um that happens quite a lot people think doing values is a good thing to do so they do it i was with somebody last year and i and I just said to them, I just, I don't think your values are wrong. I just, I just don't think you're living them enough. You know, there's not, they're not alive in the organization. You know, there's not, they're not being remarked upon every day by, by everybody. Mm. And so people do a bit of it, but they, 
they're not they're not all in. And if you're not going to go all in, you sort of may as well not bother. And do you think that's because people take or adopt sets of values that they think they should rather than values that they are able to live? Uh, like day in, day out from a leadership perspective? What's interesting is that the leadership value, the values that, the, the, if you're an executive, I probably have set a higher standard for you than, than for a frontline employee. And quite often people have got something, they've got a value, but then they haven't linked it to behaviours. You know, and it's like, well, what does that mean in this organisation? And what does that mean for you or for me? And helping people clarify what's right and what's not right. Quite often I do, I do work where we try and get into team charters. So there's the, here's the values, but in our team, this is the way we're going to behave that are congruent with the company values. Okay. And, you know, that, it might, a nationwide building society a few years ago, I saw that they had, they, they had values, and the values were the same. They're, they're called, it's pride is, is the way in which their values stack up. But for the executive team, they had different behaviours than for the cashiers. And so quite often people don't get into that that level of detail. That's interesting. Right, we've got two more to talk about. There are a couple of questions I'll ask as well, but um, second, purpose. Yes, well, yeah. I mean, we were talking about this before. So when I originally wrote this list, purpose was was number one, and then I put something else number one. But then I was with a client last week, and he said, but without purpose, nothing else matters. I just think it's like, it's the why. You know, Simon Sinek, great TED talk uh, on why. And I think it doesn't, goes back to my thing about, you know, if you've got salespeople who are selling something and there's no why, there's no, there's no obvious customer benefit, then it's difficult. I was working with a, uh, a corporate finance house recently and the project was to teach the accountants to sell. And I asked them, I asked them what they thought sales was and they said, Salespeople are pushy, slimy, unethical. You know, they thought secondhand car dealers, double glazing. And I said, well, we won't want to do any sales training then. But what it, do you think your company sells the best product in the market? If, if a client, if you lose a pitch, does the client get a worse outcome because they didn't pick you? And every single person in the firm said yes. Every single person I spoke to said, absolutely. We are better than our competitors. And I said, well, in that case, it's ethical for me to help you sell more, right? Because, you know, you're absolutely sure. And that organization sees its purpose as helping entrepreneurs get the most value for their life's work. And that's the purpose of that organization. You can see it in the people and the work they do. What you can't do is you can't see it in the, in, in the way in which their, their website, their go-to-market, their office space, it's completely lacking there. And so that's actually one of the conversations I'm having with them at the moment is, the purpose is real, is live in the people, but it's not obvious to prospective clients. Um, and I think that it, that it, if it's more congruent to your customers and your staff, then it's really it's really powerful. Look at Rackspace; we had fanatical support, mm. and you know we, that was a high bar because at the point where, as an organisation, we set that as our as our strapline, the support was a bit shit. Uh, it certainly wasn't any better than anybody else's, but it it forced us to aim high and then it set a high bar for everything else we did and I remember at one point uh, you know we'd hired a load of uh, I suppose of the you know graduates and so we'd been there a few years and these ladies some of them were thinking about well you know getting married starting a family and they said look our maternity benefits are not fanatical they're actually uh, just legal minimum 
And so, if you know, if fanatical support is is our is is you know we're going to be fanatical about everything, then here's a thing that undermines everything that we do. So we put a team together and we said, right, let's let's fix that. So we've got world class maternity benefit. So so that almost became a purpose and a value to a certain degree. Uh, it wasn't so much of a purpose, but it, it became something. That right, I suppose became. The, the, the amount of brand value you got from that fanatical sports stuff was, was, was quite huge. compelling which was yeah. massive wasn't it and they just dropped it I think, oh. <laughs> they just dropped it yeah but, but, so, so it almost became value didn't it as well yeah well it, it, it certainly from a if, if a value is a shorthand for behaviour yeah. then it certainly was a shorthand for behaviours and, and we we used the fanatical sort of microscope across everything that happened in the business and it and it drove it drove change in behaviours so there has been, a, I think, a pretty common thread through the, the whole of the, the top ten. Um, and it's the one thing that we, that we haven't mentioned yet. Does anybody like to, make, anybody like to guess what number one is? Marcus, you don't because you know you cheat. Anybody? I think you all know you just to be shy. So number one is talent. Yeah. Do you want to start, actually, could you start by saying, telling the peer one story? Yeah. What, from the beginning? Oh, it depends how long you want to take to, yeah. the, to the punchline that you told Marcus and I before when we were standing at the table over there. I, I was living in London but had a place in Livington and it was my wife always has the best idea. So when, when they actually said they wanted to hire me, she said, well, only if we can do it in Southampton, which is why it was then in Southampton. But we had a... We had a the, I, what I, to link it to talent, that having done... Rackspace from scratch and getting to 150 people and then taking over IT Lab and having to swap out a load of staff. And it was at Pipex. Pipex, That's sorry. Oh. Yeah, so, so what I took over uh, after I left Rackspace, before I went to IT Lab, I was MD at Pipex. And I walked in on the first day and the first thing that the first person said to me is, HR, I'll have you for those. I was wearing jeans because I haven't worn a suit in a long time. And I went, I'm the new MD. And they went, that doesn't matter. They'll have you for that. And so I sent an email around to the whole company, 120 people. I said, look, uh, you know, built my reputation on building great places to work, great service, da 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 da. What should we fix today? Like, what is it that you want me to fix? I'm the new managing director. Just, you know, tell me what you want me to fix. I went to IT in the afternoon and I said, look, does my email not work? Because I've had no replies to that email I sent. And they went, no, no, it works. It's just nobody gives a shit. <laughs> So the office lease came up and I moved the location of our business 120 miles away so nobody who worked at the existing business could come and work in the new location. I hired six of them to come and train the new workforce for six months. And because the board slightly vacillated on how long we had to do it, we had, we had four weeks to hire 99 people. So I hired the guys that Asda used when they opened a new supermarket and they had people people in bikinis in shopping centres handing out flyers and balloons and local radio ads and we had put 8,000 people in the first week through Selection Centre 1,000 a night for 8 days and in the end we hired 99 people in 4 weeks so when people say to me they have a recruitment challenge I'm slightly sceptical and, and we, hired, we hired better people, I mean they, what they'd had is they had had a policy of if anybody left the manager probably didn't get the headcount back and so the managers had been working for 4 years before I got there on the basis that somebody's better than nobody and so the quality in the team had just gone down and down and down and down and down. And that leads us nicely into talking about the current debate about A players and B players, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so so what's, a, your, what's your thoughts on it? Well, there was an article uh, that I read the other week by somebody from in uh, the EO organization, and he was saying there's a there's a role there's a role in every company for for B players. I don't think he used the term plodder, but B players. And maybe we're talking about, maybe our definition of A and B is different. But to me, an A player, it's not Jack Welch where it's take the top 10% and, and their A's and the bottom 10% C's, you fire them. It's not stack ranking. To me, an A player is the 5 to 10% available talent in any location for any salary for a, for a given job. And, and that's what you, you, your aim should be. Look, at any point, 10% of your people are probably off their game for something that, I don't know, the hamster died or something, right? So you'll have 10% of people who aren't A's today, but the aim should be that the other 90% should be A's or A potential. And that should be your aim. And you should review that every quarter. So uh, Jim Collins says, every month, every manager should ask themselves about everybody in their team. Knowing what I know about them today, would I be sad if they resigned and I would I rehire them tomorrow? And if you can't, if you can't, if you can't be honest with yourself, and what happens is you tend to find out you, you, when you when you apply that, you know, would you enthusiastically rehire thing? People go, no. And then quite often what I find is that, I mean, I get often asked by clients to fix problems, which are actually symptoms of the fact that they don't believe they could hire better people. Mm. So they're, they're trying to build a system around mediocre people or average people. And talent isn't a bell curve, it's a power, power law. So you don't have to pay more, but you can get people on the same money who are 10 times better than average. You know, Google, reckon Google, reckons, Google reckons their engineers are 100 times the average. Um, Netflix pay 25% above market because they think they've got A players. You know, and when, they, when if somebody fails to pass their, you know, if somebody's not an A player, they pay them to leave because you are depriving an A player of the chair. And, and that A player could be 10x average. And so that sort of compound interest in your business, you know, every, every day, every month, you've got better people than the competition doing 10x the work of the competition. It's just staggering. You know, even if you've got average people and you get them engaged, you get 40%, you know, almost double. And so it's just, uh, you know, it's just about talent. You've got to build the business on, on amazing people. So, so do you think a bad hire is worse than no hire? Um, yeah, because you've all... You, is that all the time? Well, you see, what happens is it's the sort of sunk cost fallacy, right? So you think, oh, God, uh, you know, you meet them on day one and you think, oh, shit, we've hired a nutter. And then three months later, they're still there because you're trying to persuade yourself they're not, they're not a nutter because you don't want to go back through the process of recruiting again because it took you six months and it cost you a load of money. And so that happens all the time. We, we try as human beings to give people the benefit of the doubt. And so I think what you've got to do is you've got to build a really rigorous recruitment process. You've got, well, you've got to do two things. You've got to go into the market to attract people. You do not have a God-given right to attract amazing talent unless you're already a huge brand. And so you've got to work really hard. You've got to write different job ads. You've got to do search. You've got to have something about your organization that would make the best employer of your competitor come and work for you rather than stay where they are, given that they're successful where they are. And so it's like, how do I, how do I create a business or how do I create a set of benefits or how do I create a job that would take that employee from my competitor and, you know, it may be that you don't need to recruit from your competitors, but unless you, unless you, unless you're, 
employer brand or your proposition is strong enough to attract great people. But then once you've got a few great people, great people want to work with great people. So then when you bring in somebody else great and they see the quality that they get to work with, it becomes self-reinforcing unless, as Guy Kawasaki said, A players hire A players and B players hire C players. And it, and it can go to shit in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. And so building a robust recruitment plan, you know, one of the things is if you and I were interviewed, we, we'd lie to candidates. Like we wouldn't do it on purpose, but we'd have rose-tinted spectacles about how good this job was. And so, you know, go get any candidate, go spend time with the team that they're going to work for or work with. Um, get the team get the team to have a veto if it's a good team because uh, they'll spot things that you didn't spot. And test people, you know, get them to do the job for you. People like WordPress get people to do work part-time for them before they give them a full-time gig, you know, so you can actually see what the quality of their output's like. I find the hardest job to hire for is project managers. I haven't come up with yet a decent test of pro- for project managers, but most other roles I've found a way of testing their testing their competence before before hiring them. Excellent. Right. Who's got a question? What's your definition of either an A player, someone who can be moved around the business, or someone who has to be fired? When I do the talent review with clients on a quarterly basis. It's basically a six-box grid. So across the top is A players, B players, and C players, but they are people who live the values. And then you've got the people who don't live the values who are, and and in that case, an A is exceeding expectations, meeting expectations, and not meeting expectations. And below the line, you've got everyone who they don't believe actually lives the the values in the organisation. And sometimes you've got people who are exceeding expectations but not living the values. And they're often salespeople or network engineers. Somebody with a talent, what the organization believes is a rare talent, so they put up with them being a total dick. And so you've got to get rid of them. And that can often be hard because the organization thinks that they're rare and they're difficult to find. So you've got to go and fix that. And when you do, the whole organization breathes a sigh of relief and says, huh, management aren't as stupid as we thought they were. They actually realized this guy was a dick and we got rid of him. And then, you've got the, and then you've got the Bs and the Cs. So then you've got the Bs who could be an A. And sometimes it's not fair because they haven't had any feedback. So the manager says, oh, they're a B. Do they know that? No. Okay, well, there's, let's start with that. Why don't we start with telling them where we think they currently underperform? Where are they not meeting expectations? Um, and then you've got some Cs and it's like, well, have they always been a C? Were they a B? But now they're a C. Is there something else? Could we narrow the role? Because if they, if they fit on values, I'll, I'll give them a second chance or maybe even a third chance. If you have a whiteboard on the wall in your office and I walk inside, what would I see written on it? What's on my, there's nothing on the whiteboard unless the children have scribbled on it. Um, but I do think that even me as a, as a sole entrepreneur or, you know, I'm in business and there's just me, I still have a purpose. And I've still written down my values and I've still thought about what I'm trying to do with my business. And I still have a plan about what, where, this, where I want this business to be in, in 36 months' time. I think the other thing I'd say on that is that unless you get a lot of this stuff, all, all of those 10 points, unless you get it down and nailed for employee number one or employee number two, you can't correct it once there's eight of you. Because all of a sudden you've got to 
a hell of a, and I've been there, so you've got a hell of a mess that you've got to sort out. So you may not go to the, to the extents of some of it, but you've certainly got to be thinking about what values do I want in the company? What, what values represent me in the business? Where are we going to work? How am I going to pay my people? What's, do I want an A player or do I not? If you want an A player, you need to go and get them from day one. Don't go and hire the first guy who comes along and says, oh, I fancy a job. Because you, you just end up having to sort out bigger problems further down the road. So I think it's incumbent upon everybody that starts a business to think through those things, maybe to a slightly less degree, but you've certainly got to have, be cognizant of them. So when, when I was at, in, in the businesses I've run, the financial numbers were great, but I, when I reflected back and thought what gave me the most joy, it was actually hiring people where I thought I could see potential in them that they couldn't see in themselves. And then helping them on that journey so that, you know, hiring graduates who became sales directors or hiring a guy who was a cable puller in Bournemouth and he ended up being a cybersecurity expert and helping those people because I just thought they had the right attitude and having a business meant I could, I could help them. And now as a coach, the clients that I work with, I get a, a sense of joy and satisfaction out of having an impact in the leadership team and throughout those businesses. And, you know, if those businesses are great places to work, then all of those people come to work on a Monday with a spring in their step and go home on a Friday and don't kick the dog and punch the wife or whatever they do. As a, as a coach, um, how soon do you know whether you can work with a client or not? I meet the CEO and I can't work with some of them. But sometimes I work with the CEO and the way in which they describe their business, it's, that's not how it is when you get in. Hmm. And so what I do when I'm working with a client is I say, look, we're getting into this thinking this is at least a 12-month engagement. But in the first 90 days, either of us has the right to cancel because I might go and do a session with the leadership team. In fact, one of the things I do to take, to take my own medicine, because I say I hire a candidate, but before I allow them to start, I want them to spend some time with the team. What I do is I go and do, I'll go and do a sort of a three-hour session with the leadership team. No obligation. They, they, you know, they haven't paid any money. We haven't signed a contract. But I just want to work with the team to see whether I think I can help them. Because one of the things that you, you talk about is, and it's come across tonight, is clearly how much you read and listen to stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then the other thing that you're interested in is like whether people consider themselves to be lucky, isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's, um, there is. I, it's, it's one of the interview questions that uh, I now ask everybody. So I say, you know, on a scale of one to ten, how lucky do you think you are? And what I'm after is I'm after people who give me an eight or a nine or a ten. Because lucky people don't blame other people and they're more resilient. And in fact, one of my clients gave me a fantastic example of that. He's a triathlete um, and he was on holiday. He was, he was, up to, he was off to be doing some triathlon somewhere in, in Europe and he was on holiday with his family in Italy and he came back and I met him for a coaching session and he said oh let's have a beer I said I thought you were doing this triathlon and he went no no I've had an accident so then he said he said up there we were in Italy and he said I, I realized I hadn't done any box jumps that day and I'm standing next to this stone bench he said I just finished a call and I went to jump up onto the bench he said and I slipped and my knees my legs ran down the side at the front of this stone bench, he said, 48 stitches in my shins. I was in the hospital till four o'clock in the morning. He said, to start with, I was lying on the floor screaming and, and nobody came. <laughs> they were all having a sort of family party over here. And, and so I said, God, that's terrible. He went, yeah, but it could have been worse. I could have smashed my chin. And it's just like lucky people always go, it doesn't matter what happens to them. They just have that sort of positive outlook. Yeah. And so hiring positive people definitely 
Uh, hiring lucky people definitely is a good thing to do. And how important do you think the reading thing is? Well, there's a number of people who say, uh, you know, you, you have to read. And various estimates say that, look, successful CEOs read at least 24 books a year. So they read two books a month. I do a bit better than that. I read two books a week. But I know that's because I'm mad. <laughs> so, uh, and I, I'm basically audible. I, 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 I don't, I, I probably read maybe high double digits paper books, but everything else I consume, mm-hmm. uh, consume on audible. Do you develop your B players into A players? Or do you model your A's in a way that B's can learn and improve themselves? There's a great book called First Break All the Rules by Marcus Buckingham. And he says, it's subtitled, What the Best Managers Know. And he said, what managers do is they spend 80% of their time with their best people. And actually that tends to be the reverse. Uh, Often managers, there's another stat which I saw which says people spend 2% of their time recruiting and then 72% of the time dealing with the problems they cause themselves by not being very good at recruiting. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, that, I think if you can spend time with your... A players and help. Look, when I was, my first job out of university was working at M&S. And so in retail, that aisle end, you know, what's your best space? You put your best line in your best space because that's, that gives you the most return per square foot. And so if you're a manager and you can have any positive impact on your people, then spend the most time you've got available with your best people because that will, that will help you hit the team goal. I think some of it's around expectation and, and daily feedback. And quite often I find that that's missing. The people who end up being managers, you know, there's a, there was a great slide from Silicon Beach a couple of years ago, and it's like, um, we've all worked for leaders who are shit, but nobody's ever had any leadership training, so guess what? We'll all end up being shit leaders. And it's that, it's that sort of, you know, we've never, if you've never worked for somebody who's a great manager, then it's very difficult to learn those skills. So, you know, be a great manager, do one-to-ones with your team, set expectations. And what I find is when you're really clear about what the expectations are, you don't have to fire people. They just leave. Because who wants to come to work every day and fail to meet expectations? As long as they're reasonable. How important is it for the leaders of the company to spend time outside the company to do blue sky thinking and strategic meetings? Yeah, so uh, when I'm sitting down with the CEO, if their biggest challenge is strategy, which I think it should be, and for me... Strategy is next year's profit. Another way of thinking about it is next year's profit. I think they should be spending four days a week on next year's profit because that's their job and nobody else has that job except them. I think that no company performs better than the leadership team works as a team. Um, And at Pier 1, we had the team was spread across three countries, two continents and seven cities. And so when the CEO, Gary Sherlock, took over, he said, right, what we're going to do is we're going to go off-site for a week, a quarter, and we're not going to work on the business. We're going to work on the interpersonal relationships in this team. And we rented a house and we cooked for each other for three days. And we did, we worked on the, the team because otherwise, because if you can't trust each other on the other side of the world, you know, nothing, we just won't be able to move things forward. And so I think that, Building the relationships and the trust in the team is absolutely fundamental. And actually, I don't think you can build a strategy unless you've got that trust. Because people, are, people, there won't be enough conflict. You won't get the right answer. And so I, that's what I spend a lot of my time doing with clients is how do, they, how do we get the leadership team to 
work better together, become a high-performing team so that the company can be become high-performing. And so if they're not spending, and quite often that's the case, people are not spending enough time, they're not investing enough time, we're too busy, we can't invest in this. And actually, that's where I say, look, if, if you're not prepared to invest the time, then, then I can't help you. Because you, you know what the problem is, but you're not, you're not prepared to fix it. Thank you, Dom. That was absolutely superb. Lots of great information and knowledge. Um, thank you, everybody. Um, if we just say thank you to Dom in the normal way, that would be excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. As a token of your appreciation, it'd be fantastic if you could go wherever you're listening and leave me a review. Those reviews really help other people find this podcast. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast, and there you'll find some fantastic show notes, additional reading and links relating to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of my subjectively not crap newsletter. The simplest thing to do on the website is to sign up and I'll update you each week on the most interesting articles that I've read on all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. For social, you can find me on Twitter, Dom Monkhouse, and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse, although LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me, share your questions and comments, and, and perhaps even recommend a guest for a future edition of the Melting Pot podcast. Thanks for listening.